Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and we are just hours away from the end of the most consequential Supreme Court term, I think, of my lifetime. And Joe and I are, in very short order, going to bring you an episode where we break down the big cases, not just the Dobbs decision, but what's going on with respect to the Second Amendment, religious rights, the EPA. There's so much for us to talk about. Today, I'm thrilled to say we are joined by Stephen Marsh. Stephen is a novelist, essayist, and cultural commentator. He's the author of half a dozen books, including The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century, also The Hunger of the Wolf, and recently The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future. He has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, The Walrus, and many others. He is the host of the hit audio series, How Not To, I'm going to just say F up here, How Not to F Up Your Kids Too Bad, and its sequel, How Not to F Up Your Marriage Too Bad on Audible. We could do a whole other episode just on those things. Uh, You can find Stephen at his website, Stephen Marsh, all one word, that's M-A-R-C-H-E.com, on Twitter, at Stephen Marsh. Stephen, thank you for being here, and thank you for passing judgment with us. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. So let's begin with the title of your new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And I'm going to start very broad with the idea that if our listeners haven't already read the book, they should, but some of them may not have. So Mm -hmm. why does it seem that American society is destined for not just some sort of conflict, but to fight again in what you've called a civil war? Well, I, I wouldn't say destined. I mean, I don't, um, you know, I wanted to write a book where I showed sort of the best available models on a number of fronts, including political science, including the environmental models, including economic models, um, and so on. But, you know, nothing is written in stone. Um, the odds of there being another civil war, according to most, uh, you know, the, the experts class of foreign policy got together, as well as um American public opinion is about two out of three, about 67%. So those odds are scary enough. Um, They don't like the fact that it's two thirds of a way to a civil war um, is, is already perfectly frightening. It doesn't need to be exaggerated. I I think the, um, the key thing to understand is that it's not, it's also not refighting the civil war. This is not a blue versus red North versus South kind of conflict you know, that the experts that I spoke with and the models that I use predict, but really a kind of struggle of order against chaos. Um, and one in which we're in a situation where there's an insurgency and counterinsurgency. And really there's a there's a rise in political violence that is already measurable. And the question is how how far does it go? Um, how how much how much political violence will America experience um, in in a period of uh, essentially the breakdown of politics there. So I want to pick up on a couple of things, but the first, mm-hmm. as you said, you talked to a number of different experts and yeah. you gave the ratio of about two to three odds or two out yeah. of three that we're going to experience another civil war. And you've explained that it will be different. And I want to talk about how it could be different, but 
Could we dive a little bit deeper into what brings us to that, you know, 67% chance that we'll, we'll see another civil war? Can we walk through the pro column a little bit? Sure. Well, what it is, um, the, the approach that I took was the complex cascading system failure approach. So that doesn't mean that that means that there's not one or two things. It's actually a number of things. So, you know, you have things like the level of inequality in the United States being at the highest level it's been essentially since the Revolutionary War period. You have environmental crises that increasingly create uh, essentially climate refugees. Uh, Then you have extreme economic fragility um, of of a very dangerous kind. Uh, plus, you know, the big ones, which are the fact that America is going to be a majority minority country by 2040. Um, and that all over the world uh, leads, you know, in, you know, that's not a crisis that only America faces. Whenever countries have situations where dominant ethnic class loses its dominance, there tends to be political violence, um, as well as, you know, the, the decline in institutions, right? The decline in trust in um, all political institutions, but institutions generally, you know, you've got this massive decline in the United States in trust in, in churches in trust in the police and in trust in the law. And that, that situation, which is, which tends to be described as anocracy, where you're in between autocracy and democracy, uh, tends to be incredibly unstable. So it's really, it's not one thing. It's really a bunch of things Yes, and right. and the and the the violence, um, you know, the the problem with the violence is that when you don't have transpartisan, bipartisan institutions that are fair referees, um, that tends to lead to a sense that violence can be justified. And of course, that's you know what we're seeing right now in the United States. That's not a prediction. So. Can you actually talk to us a little bit about the last thing you just said? I thought it was going to go somewhere else, but you said we don't have institutions that are fair referees. I could answer that with a certain viewpoint, but I'm more curious to see what yours is. Well, it's not it's not really a question of the the inherent justice of those institutions. I mean, I think that's one thing to be really clear about. It's a sense that those institutions are widely accepted by people, right? So when you have only around 20% of Americans feel their electoral system is fair, um, that that's a crisis in and of itself. When you have 40% of the country who feel the last election was stolen, you know, it, whether or not it was stolen, it, that's a crisis in and of itself. Um, when you have people who don't believe the Supreme Court is a legitimate body because five out of them last nine Supreme Court justices were selected by presidents who didn't win the popular mandate, um, that's that's a problem in and of itself, regardless of, you know, the intent of those bodies or or the actual nature of that administration. So that's why it's the decline in trust that's really the key marker. That has been traced pretty consistently since the 1980s, that decline in trust. That, that's exactly what I wanted to know, which is there's yeah. two parts of that. It's lack of faith in institutions or lack of fairness in institutions or both. Yeah. Well, and they feed into each other. Right. right. I mean, like like institutions that but it's really the key thing is the lack of trust in the institutions, because that's when you have political breakdown. Right. I mean, that's when you have people who believe that violence is the solution because they don't have 
a method of getting to political solutions to their problems. And, you know, American, like the, the reason I say a complex cascading system, like why I describe that is that, you know, in America, of course, right now, you know, the political system is essentially highly paralyzed, right? Like it, it like it, it is very, very hard to do even basic things on a federal level, like appoint ambassadors or like that took 11 months. Like I'm in Canada. It took 11 months for, Biden to appoint an ambassador to Canada, we're your largest trading partner. That's a very basic function of government. Those sorts of things are increasingly really hard to do in the United States because of the anger and because of the hyperpartisanship that motivates essentially political action. So when people see that their government isn't functioning, uh, that's when the answer to them doesn't seem to be, you know, to turn to electoral politics or you know, vote them out, but to turn to violence. And that's why, you know, both parties right now, about one third of Republicans and Democrats say that violence might be necessary uh, to keep the other party from abusing power. So those are the numbers that are really scary. I want to go back to lack of faith in our institutions and why. I mean, some of this lack of faith, in my view, is Mm -hmm. entirely reasonable. And I think you've pointed out the logical consequence of what happens in terms of that type of breakdown. I do want to circle all the way back for a moment to something you said in the very beginning, where you said the next civil war, if it happens, it will not be red versus blue. You talked about political violence. I think I know the answer, but for our listeners, who is it? Then it's not going to be red versus blue. Who's on one side? Who's on the other side? It's chaos, right? So it's forces of insurgency and, uh, and, and people who are willing to use political violence to achieve their ends. So it's the people you saw January 6th right. on one side. It's the violent far-right groups um, are the number one domestic terrorism threat in the United States. Um, what happens to the left when it feels that the system has failed, um, which is happening very quickly, Right. I mean, like it, like the, the sense of uh, in the on the left that politics in the sense of like electing people and selecting judges is a way to achieve political ends is diminishing very rapidly. Um, and their faith in the institutions is, it, you know, it, what happened in the right in 2008, where essentially their faith in all American political institutions collapsed is, is happening on the left right now. And I think will happen in the next election or in either this year or 2024, certainly I would, I would say by 2028, uh, it, it will be severely challenged by, uh, you know, the fact that the, no one is going to believe in the legitimacy of these elections. Like there's, it's the only people who are going to believe in the legitimacy of those elections are the people who win. Again, we're talking with Stephen Marsh. He's the author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, and it is currently out. Stephen, I want to pick up on what you were just talking about, which is January 6th. And we've heard so much about this in the last few weeks because there's Mm -hmm. been an acceleration of the hearings. You just talked about, or you alluded to basically what what potentially will happen with respect to the Department of Justice and will they indict some higher level members of the Trump administration or Trump. But I want to focus on whether or not what we saw on January 6th, which I think was shocking to so many people, whether or not in in your view that was actually very predictable given all the factors that you've talked about with us about the contribution of this 
chaotic conflict that we may see and whether or not that really is a microcosm of what we could see in the future. Was that a good snapshot of what this conflict might look like? Well, you know, I mean, I have been working on this book for four years by the time January 6th happened. So it was, what surprised me about it is how, and I've been talking to people like this for a long time. So what surprised me about it actually was how badly organized it was and how, uh, and how it, it didn't really use the, 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 the military force that they have, that they have access to, which is pretty substantial, you know? I mean, some of these, they, they certainly members of these groups have been caught with low-level nuclear devices, right? And so they were, they, I think they surprised themselves, really. And they, to me, what January 6th is... Um, is sort of like the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Like okay. it's not, it, it's not the big one. It's a preparatory, uh, chaotic prevision of what's to come. But you know, they, um, I, I don't think they expected even for a second to be given the kind of political cover that they were, you know, that they were given. What I do want to focus back on is the idea of our institutions and our lack of faith in the institutions. And I, I'm particularly interested in all of the structural reasons that I think people do feel politically powerless. And I know this is something you think about, but you talked about, we're going to have a majority minority country. We are also going to have a country separate from that, where our institutions are counter majoritarian, no matter who is in the majority, our institutions are really not set up to represent them. I'm thinking about the Senate, the Electoral College, to a certain extent, the idea of the judiciary and judicial review. Oh, yeah. You're already there. Right. So how much does that factor into that 67% chance that we could see a civil war? Is it, are we at a point- Some people would say it's the number one reason. Like, I would not go that far, but certainly it is among the top two or three reasons. Because what you have is a political dysfunction and you have a sense of the decline of the equality under the law. And, you know, when you've lost equality under the law, that that sense of equality under the law, you've lost everything. Right. Your country is lost. And uh, it's that it is a premonition of violence in almost every case in the world where that happens. Right. Um, So. Yeah, these institutions are like in their radical decline. And, you know, they're already like, you know, by 2040, the number is 30 percent of the country will control 70 percent of the Senate. Right. So it will not be uh, a democratic institution. It will be something else. It will be some uh, hangover from a uh, from an antiquated document, i.e. the U.S. Constitution, that no longer applies to reality. Right. And I mean, the most amazing thing about writing this book from an, you know, from an outside point of view, from a Canadian point of view, is that wherever I went in the country talking to hardcore racists, talking to Texas separatists, talking to, uh, you know, New York Times editors, talking to, you know, people, people in Black Lives Matter, like talking to people from every different political stripe is that they all worship the Constitution. Right. They all have this like deep, they, they, you know, when I'm from Canada, right? Like there's an active separatist movement here. That's very established. They do not worship the Canadian constitution, right? They hate it. They want to be out from it. When you go and talk to a Texas separatist and you're like, well, why do you care about the American constitution? 
but it, it has taken on these elements of a holy document, of a religious document. And, you know, that, that document is really, um, like, it's failing you, right? Like, it is, not, it is not working to provide what it promised, which is, uh, you know, practical government for the people that does not, uh, you know, that is not tied to the ghosts of king and, you know, all these religious ghosts that Europe and, and can't, certainly Canada were prey to for so long. And that, to me, is really the heart of the crisis, that you have this constitution that is pretty much non-functional at this point, not because of anything wrong. It's a work of great genius, but it, you know, it no longer serves the needs of practical politics. And the question is, how long can you live with this non-functional system? At what point do you think, and I know you've talked to a lot of people about what happens next in America at what point do we just stop respecting constitutional decisions? I mean, you said something I thought was so fascinating, which is everybody seems to view the Constitution as this holy book. Part of the Constitution is that the Supreme Court makes a decision, and we could have a long discussion about Marbury versus Madison and judicial review, but part of it is that we adhere to it. So they said that the right to obtain abortion is no longer protected in the Constitution. We some of us may hate it, but we'll respect it. What happens next? Let me give you my point of view. So like when you read something like the Second Amendment, right, and it says the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, if you read that literally, and it, and it means that you should be able to possess a nuclear weapon, right? I mean, like, like if, the, if the right to bear arms is not to be infringed, then you should literally be able to possess any weapon whatsoever. And there are several... I mean, I don't know what the number would be, but I would, I would, I would estimate somewhere around twenty percent of Americans believe that, right? Like, there should be no limit on what you could own. I mean, that's why you have people in Missouri who own tanks and you know all this other stuff, right? And uh, that's an eighteenth-century document because they couldn't imagine a machine gun, right? Like they, they couldn't, they, they, they were just in a different. The Second Amendment was written in a completely different material reality. Well, and you wrote a piece right after the Dobbs decision. With the end of Roe, the U.S. edges closer and closer to civil war. And one of the things that you mentioned in the piece, and you've been talking about symptoms, and I was wondering if we can talk about more causes for a moment as well. You have a line in the piece, the possibility of civil war has long been a mainstay of right-wing talk radio. You also talk about other... Sources of the media, you say, according to New York Times series, Tucker Carlson has articulated the theory of white replacement more than 400 times on his show. How much of what is happening is a result of, I mean, we've talked about the Constitution and why the document may or may not work for us anymore, but how much of it is also a result of our information diet? The information diet, like, you know, everyone has this natural tendency to blame Facebook and to blame these things. But, you know, Canada has Facebook, too. Canada has much more Facebook than integration than the United States. And so does so do countries like Sweden and Germany. And they, you know, in Germany, when they when the Russian misinformation camps came for them, all of the German parties, including the AFD, including the far right party, said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to use any of this stuff. Um, because we want to keep our own country, you know, the, the vulnerability and in information networks in the United States comes from a certain, it, it has to be willed, 
right? You know, there's the, and that really is a million dollar question for me that I don't really have an answer to is why. I mean, you know, the January 6th hearings have also shown this. You have these Republican operatives who probably don't believe what they're doing when they help to organize January 6th. It seems to me like it's done out of careerism. I do for our listeners want to focus back for a moment as we're ending our conversation on what can we do right now? So we've talked about all of the reasons why things are, for lack of a better term, you know, falling apart, the center cannot hold whatever way we want to describe this. But are there some specific things that you'd think right now maybe are more realistic than a constitutional convention, but have a chance of making a difference? Like, for instance, the thing we hear about all the time, particularly after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, is, well, let's get rid of the filibuster. Is that something that you think would maybe allow us to avoid this big conflict? Would it just delay the inevitable? Would it make very little difference? I think anyone on the left who wants to end the filibuster is really not paying attention. Um, once the filibuster is over, the right, who are going to control the Senate very quickly, permanently, in a structure, like simply through this terrible structure, um, where they will control the presidency through the Electoral College, and they will control the Senate through this uh, you know, through essentially the misallocation of power largely away from urban centers towards rural centers, um, you know, that that is going to give the right a huge advantage, uh, you know, in the in the immediate future. Like it's not, that's not even 10 years away. Um, so ending the filibuster, I think, is a is a very bad idea. I mean, the obvious ones are open primaries. Right. Where you this is a way of countering extremism on both sides, which I think is an obvious idea. But I also think like the truth is that the left needs to wake up and realize that the right is operating as if these systems are already broken. Right. Like the, the right does not care about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. They, they just don't. They only care about whether it does what they want it to do and whether it can deliver for them. And I think the time has come for, you know, one of the things I found so heartbreaking in this book is that when you talk to people on the left, they retain this desperate faith in, institu in their institutions. Like they've been educated to believe that the American answers to are, are essentially the solution to history. And, and they've been and especially the older Democrats. I mean, like your Bidens, your Nancy Pelosi's, your Chuck Schumer's, um, where they just kind of believe like, well, we're going to have to restore faith in these institutions by dealing with our opponents in good faith and they'll come around. That's historical. That is an historical outlook. So, you know, I, I mean, I just think, you know, they should have been, they should have spent the past two years stacking the Supreme court, getting statehood for DC, doing whatever they could to prepare these institutions for the onslaught that it's about to face. But they, they really haven't done that. Well, Stephen Marsh, you've provided us with so much information. We could have picked up on threads of this conversation and gone for hours. For now, I'm going to direct people back to your most recent book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Your website, www.stephenmarsh, again, that's M-A-R-C-H-E.com. You're also on Twitter, at Stephen Marsh. I want to thank you so much for your time and for having this conversation with us, it was exactly as troubling as it should be. So I want to thank you for that. 
<laughs> that's exactly the right way to describe it. People say, I enjoyed your book. I'm like, well, I'm not, that's not really, I didn't enjoy writing it. So I'm not sure you should enjoy reading it. We enjoyed talking to you about it. So I enjoyed talking to you as well. It was wonderful. Thank you again to Stephen Marsh for having that conversation with us. And thank you to our listeners. Again, as always, please rate, review, subscribe. And we love hearing from you. You can contact me on Twitter, on Instagram, at Levinson Jessica. And we're happy to bring this other episode of Passing Judgment to you. We'll be back soon with a deep dive into the Supreme Court term that was, I think, the most consequential of our lifetime. Mm-hmm.